You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here, a big round full moon outside when I came in this morning. Uh, very exciting to see a moon that big. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR, of course. And uh, today we're going to be a little bit uh, federal and a little bit local. And uh, first up, we're going to be talking to Scott, Scott John Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation um, as they talk about the federal government fast-tracking mining approvals which will, as they say, uh, fast-trackers to extinctions. Uh, so we're going to have a, a look at uh, why the federal government, I guess, has not called, officially called the election, which allows them to go ahead with some fairly uh, devious uh, behaviour. Uh, we're going to talk to Stephen Jolly, who's a Yarra City Council councillor about an interesting development happening in Yarra where it's got a dominant Greens uh, councillor base around uh, community uh, abilities to have an effect on uh, developments in the Yarra uh, area. Uh, We're going to move on to This Is The Week That Was and then to Preston Market uh, there's all, all these different sort of complexions around changes that are happening in local council areas uh, and uh, it's exposing um, how policy coming from state government is affecting uh, much-loved and appreciated community assets and uh, being uh, turned, some people would say, into uh, corridors of zombie towers for uh, more and more people to live, but uh, with very few social amenities. Anyway, we're going to talk to Gatiano uh, Greco about uh, the um, campaign uh, to save Preston Market. We're following that with uh, a chat with Susan Connolly, uh, Sister Susan Connolly, about the new machinations in the Bernard Galeri case. More secrecy, uh, more uh, efforts towards uh, shrouding Uh, our uh, legal systems processes in um, secrecy, which can never be a very good thing for uh, so-called democracy. Before we do go on to the program, I've got a couple of um, items which uh, dovetail into the uh, issue of um, changes to community assets uh, under the guise of improvement, but... uh, are a bit spurious. We, you would have heard that the community Collingwood Community Gardens have been raised, uh, thro- uh, bulldozed over, 
apparently because they're unsafe. Although, of course, we all know that uh, when um, WorkSafe puts out a, a, a pin notice on a, a safety, it uh, doesn't mean you have to destroy the uh, the object of the safety pin notice. You just have to improve it. But uh, that wasn't obviously the outcome that the Collingwood Community Farm were after. Anyway, the uh, the Collingwood Community Gardeners have put out this release, which is important because as a result of uh, what has happened down there, the carnage that's happened down there, uh, because uh, there's more action to be um, had. So this is their letter. I'll read it to you. To our supporters, you may have heard the news that the Collingwood Community gardens were completely cleared by the Committee of Management of the Collingwood Children's Farm beginning in mid-February. The topsoil was scraped, the three-quarter acre field left to dry out and blow away in the height of summer. Our plants and possessions were destroyed and taken to the tip. Gardeners were not allowed on the plots. As we watched the heavy machinery arrive, I was reminded of Bruce Pascoe's writing in Dark Emu. Farmers are the heart and the soul of this enterprise, but there have to be better ways to farm the light Australian soils. We've spent time privately mourning the loss of the gardens, and we'd now like to invite you to a couple of events we've planned to help reinstate the local gardening community and to help us envisage what a revitalised community garden space could be. Firstly, we're holding a wake this Sunday, March the 20th, from 11am to 2pm at the Oak Tree by the entrance to the Collingwood Community Gardens, just off the walking track and by the banks of the Birrarung Yarra River. So that's March the 20th, tomorrow, Sunday, 11am to 2pm, a wake. All gardeners and supporters are welcome to join us as we reflect on what community gardens mean to us and future strengthening the bonds between the community who've been run over roughshod by the Farms Committee of Management. Our local member, Richard Wynne, also the state's planning minister, Lily Dumbarosia, Minister for Environment, the Crown Lands Office at DELWP, Corporate Consultants, Mickelson Alexander, Tech & Co. A lot of public money has changed hands and we're concerned about their plans to redevelop the site. Over the past nine months, the gardeners have been held together by little more than our time and effort. Attempts at public consultation by the farm and its corporate PR firms have failed. We're still standing, so we've decided to organise the meeting. The community, the Collingwood Community Gardens Association will be holding a public meeting about the future of the Collingwood Community Garden site. The purpose of the meeting is to seek Yarra community views about the future of the site, which is on Crown land. The public meeting will be held on Friday, April the 8th from 6.30pm to 8.30pm at the Collingwood Library Meeting Room. That's at 11 Stanton Street, Abbotsford. There's going to be speakers. You can register to attend in person and uh, you can go to Everbright and look up the uh, Collingwood Community Garden Renewal Workshop. And uh, there's also a Zoom accessible uh, 
uh, event. So you should go to their page on Megaphone to find out about that. So that's on Friday, April the 8th, 6.30pm to 8.30pm. Now, last week we were talking to somebody, uh, Joshua, from the uh, Collingwood uh, Public Housing uh, down in uh, 240 Wellington Street. Now, they had called a meeting of people on Friday, last Friday, but there was, uh, I didn't see very much sign of action down there, I must say. But I did go down and have a check to see what was going on. And uh, I was quite fascinated to discover something I probably should have known already because there's been a lot of trumpeting about the uh, new social housing uh, Homes Victoria push coming out of the state government. There's a whole plan, of course. And um, uh, to begin with, the I don't know if you've ever been down to 240 uh, uh, Wellington Street, but... Uh, it's got uh, towers, it's also got public housing towers, it's also go, got low-rise. And in a, and the low-rise and the towers uh, surround uh, what is a relatively small area of open space. And it's got uh, a basketball court, it's got uh, some grass, it's got some seating areas, there's, uh, you know, where people could, with a bit of grass, not... And it, and I wouldn't say that it was a hugely um, uh, salubrious uh, amount of space because you can understand you've got uh, Wellington Street, which is uh, very busy. You've got the uh, Collingwood built up all around there and uh, a close street nearby. And that little green oasis actually services not just the public towers, but it gives a little bit of breathing space for all the very close uh, sitting houses. Anyway, there was a community uh, consultation board on, at the, on each side of the public space. So, of course, I gathered it up and uh, this, is, this is what they're expecting to put. Homes Victoria... Uh, has made an application, uh, which I'm assuming the... Uh, well, I'll, I'll explain. Application, 152 new dwellings, two eight-storey buildings with 211 car parks, including provision for existing residents. So I'm assuming those two eight-storey buildings are going to take up the majority of that quite uh, small um, green space and playing areas for all of the people that, that service all the people in those public housing towers. But this is the interesting thing. This is how the uh, community con- consultation process is working with uh, Home Victoria. Now, Homes Victoria is actually a state government, is the new government agency to manage manage Victoria's social housing system, um, uh, housing support, specialist homelessness services, etc., etc., right? And this is all part of their big housing build with uh, jobs and careers, uh, with one of the um, people on the board from Lendlease and da-da-da-da. Anyway, uh, community consultation process. The planning scheme provision clause 52.20 exists to facilitate social and affordable housing that does not unreasonably impact on the amenity of the adjoining dwellings. Well, that's disputable in this case, I'd say. Clause 52.20 
exempts planning applications from the standing planning notice process and VCAT appeals. Instead, Clause 52.20 requires the applicant consult with the community and the council before seeking planning approval. A planning application under Clause 52.20 is decided by the Minister for Energy, Environment and Climate Change. So that's Lily D'Ambrosio. The applicant must receive and consider the council and community input and prepare a report on how the consultation has been undertaken, the feedback received and how the feedback has been considered in the development proposal. The consultation report must be provided to the Minister for consideration when applying for planning permission. Homes Victoria will publish the consultation reports after the Minister has made a decision on the application, and you can go to homes.vic.gov.au to see what that report is. But everything has already been decided. It's really not that uh, your consultation will actually affect it happening or not happening. It's how it's going to happen. Boom, boom. Very interesting, if you ask me. Angry at paying the heavy price for COVID? How about healthy, safe conditions at work? More health care. Less police powers. A safe world with free vaccines for everyone. Rally Saturday, the 19th of March. Fight for public health and workplace safety. State Library, 12 o'clock noon. This rally was initiated by Workers' Solidarity and rally organisers are 3CR supporters.
Hi, I'm Munira from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And we're back with uh, Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and as I promised, we've got Scott Jordan. He's from the uh, Bob Brown Foundation. He's a Tarkine campaigner. G'day, Scott. How are you? Good, thank you. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's important stuff that you're uh, alerting us all to, the federal government fast-tracking mining approvals. Can you give us an understanding of uh, how you see uh, this working? Well, look, what the government is proposing is to to fast-track environmental assessments of, of entire regions, um, essentially before we know what the projects will be. And so the, this concept that in a in a day and age where we're facing a, a biodiversity crisis and an extinction crisis in, in many effects, uh, in fact, Australia listed an extra 13 species last year as, as having become extinct. Oh. Um, we're going to buy... That's horrifying. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's absolutely horrendous that um, in this day and age we're still going backwards. Um, but what we're proposing here through the federal government is... Um, to to put aside those normal processes that would apply to projects, which which let's be honest are, are pretty weak as it is. They they don't provide the level of surety that's prevented those extinctions. And the the Samuel's review said that those um, environment laws needed revamping. They needed toughening up, and they needed a, a, an effectively a cop on the beat because the federal government has largely been asleep at the wheel. Um, and we we're going to set aside those existing provisions and and fast-track assessments of entire regions without actually knowing what the, the threats that are coming down the line from those individual projects would be. This is just a, a um, capitulation to the mining industry and to developers. Well, uh, cre- like creating zones. This is the same kind of environmental vandalism that's happening in other countries as well. This idea of creating zones that become uh, prioritise economic uh, need in inverted commas. Absolutely. This, this. I mean, effectively, what they're creating is sacrifice zones. It's, it's areas where the normal environmental laws uh, won't be applied in the way that we've been used to. Yeah. So what they're doing is. Uh, applying to that particular uh, part of the uh, human psyche that says you, you have to sacrifice something. Uh, it, it, it's terrible, it's awful, but if we don't do that, we won't survive or uh, um, common good requires it. Yeah, look, and, and then it's a fallacy because uh, the reality is um, we've we've not had large amounts of mining approvals, um, but it failed to be given. Um, we've seen uh, mining approvals being, being granted in, in almost every case, and and we're not seeing a, a problem on the industry side of the EPBC Act other than you know, them having to go through a, a process of some sort. But what we are seeing is the existing laws haven't been tough enough. In fact, we're, we're still seeing species pushed towards extinction and for those 13 species we confirmed last year, it's too late. Um, it is actually quite extraordinary. Uh, on one side, it, it, is it true, do you think, that uh, because we're le- heading into a federal election and this government, I mean, we're all, everybody knows that the federal election is, uh, campaigning's already started, but there are rules and regulations around uh, what happens when a government calls the election. 
Is this government trying to hurry things up for its uh, sponsors before it calls the election? Is that what you think? Look, it, it very much looks that way. Um, this looks like a, a policy designed to to appease and, and to court um, mining developers and and developers more widely um, to be putting money into the the government's election coffers. Um, it's it's obscene that we're going to throw you know many species that are already endangered or threatened. Um, they're going to throw them straight under the bus to to try and shore up this election campaign. Uh, tell us about what's going on in the Tarkine. I mean, I, I recently, relatively recently, went to the Tarkine and uh, can't actually grasp the idea that uh, there should be logging there, uh, that it should be considered to be a reasonable thing to do. Uh, can you tell us how this kind of uh, approach by the federal government is hand in glove with what's going on in uh, the Liberal government in Tasmania and Tarkine? Yeah, look, what we're seeing in the Tarkine is is a very real threat of logging and, and through the efforts of the Bob Brown Foundation and, and hundreds uh, of um, passionate uh, defenders that have come out and stood on the blockades with us, we've, we've seen um, no logging in the Tarkine over this, this current logging season and that's something that, that replicates um, success we saw last year and so we're, we're very proud of the fact that uh, those people that stood on the line with us have, have you know, meant that there's forests that would have been felled that are still standing today. Um, but on the mining front, we're seeing um, numerous threats re-emerging. And so we've uh, we've had the, the Venture Minerals failed Nelson... Uh, sorry, failed Riley Creek mine, where they... They had an approval. Um, they operated that mine for a few months uh, as an iron ore mine, and and got their first shipload of iron ore out of the, the Burnie port, and then two days later closed the mine. Um, this was a, an incredible amount of um, environmental damage done for what turned out to be no economic benefit. The company made a loss. The taxpayer certainly made a loss, and the environment will will suffer that impact in perpetuity. Um, we've got Venture Minerals proposing two more mines, um, even after having failed their first attempt. They're proposing a a open-cut iron ore mine in the Stanley River Valley, they're calling Livingston, and there's a proposal for a tin and tungsten mine uh, on the slopes of Mount Lindsay, um, Mount Lindsay being some of the best grain forest not just in the Tarkine, but in, in Tasmania and some of the best temperate rainforest on the planet. Um, and <laughs> if those, those projects aren't bad enough, we've got a Chinese state-owned uh, mining company in, in MMG Australia who are proposing to put a, a massive tailings dam, um, mm, 140 hectare tailings dam with another 145 hectares of infrastructure where they'll be pumping... Uh, toxic acid-producing waste from the Rosebury mine across the Pyman River and dumping it in the rainforest in, in Tarkin. Pyman River, really? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a um, crazy proposal, and it you know it's it's a technology that's time has passed. Around the world, companies aren't investing in tailings dams. These are failed technologies that leave a, a legacy that lasts for centuries and and destroy large areas of, of biodiverse. Um, 
systems, but also you know, have an acid mine drainage issue that, that continues on for 700 plus years. It's um, quite fascinating, isn't it, that uh, this kind of uh, um, ec- economic development, we'll put in inverted commas, is seen, is, uh, seen as uh, progress still uh, and an important uh, part of uh, in. De- in de- Industrialization of, say, Tasmania, as a, a for example, because it's such a finite space, yeah, in com- okay. in competition with quite obvious other methods of economic development. Yeah, look, in this this particular case, it's it's um, not even necessary for the economic development. What what we know is that. Um, the company are choosing to pump this waste across the Pyman River because it's the closest point um, to its existing mine. It has area on the southern side of the river that's outside of the area that's been verified as having those World Heritage values and, and on the side of the river the, the mine actually exists on. But, but even more than that, companies around the world are moving to new technologies, including paste fill plants, where they're able to take the, the waste that was normally dumped into a tailings pond and they they reduce it down to a powder, they combine that with concrete and they use it to fill the voids within the the mine that they've been working. And oh, that's interesting. And we know already they, they have to fill those voids to increase the stability of those areas to continue mining. And so this but, is... But that, whole, but that whole area is, is a tourist destination. I mean, huge amounts of people make their living off the fact that that area is not destroyed. Absolutely. And and with a if the company was to choose to go forward with a pasteville plant, it could keep the Rosebury mine operating with the current jobs that are there. It would it would not impact on the tourism jobs that rely on the wilderness. And and just from a a perspective of we shouldn't be doing things that don't work and cause damage. Yeah. Um, yeah. The company we know already uses pastefill at one of its Queensland mines, and we know that one of the um, other mines in the area has come forward in the last six months and said, we're going to move into the 21st century and convert our operation to a, a pastefill solution. Um, the, the, the challenge is out to MMG to, to do the same. And, um, and this is a case where they could have their cake and eat it too, but they're choosing a cheaper option and... and asking the environment to pay for it. Well, that actually goes back to a full circle to the role of government in this, isn't it? Like uh, this handshake with uh, business should, shouldn't should uh, give uh, the government the get-out-of-card, uh, jail-free card that uh, says that it doesn't regulate. That's right. Yeah, in fact, um, what, what we're seeing is is a need for more regulation in the environment space. The the record speaks for itself. We are we are adding more species to the endangered list. Where we've now you know, put another thirteen species um, up that list to extinct. Um, the Samuel Review was very clear that there's there's no proper uh, enforcement of the EPBC Act, and and the Act itself is. Um, is weak in terms of not having uh, measurable standards that things can be assessed against. And so it it really does come down to ministerial approval. And um, essentially, we've, we've not had an environment minister for a long time who's been prepared to stand up against the mining industry or, or developers. Oh, well, in actual fact, I, I thought you, 
you could have stopped there and said we haven't had an environmental uh, environment minister. That's it. <laughs> well, there's possibly some truth in that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for talking to us this morning, uh, Scott. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. The only, only dream I want, the only, only dream I have, in the morning when I wake up, I feel you in my head, all we gotta do is grow, and believe it's in our souls, for the world we love, we'll see it again, never fade away, never fade away, Paris and you're listening to 3CR. Be proud, be strong. You have a smile that bring a tear to my eye. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, on the theme of uh, uh, zombie towers that it seems to be taking over the entire landscape. It's, it's kind of funny uh, in inner cities and uh, 
Uh, it's kind of funny because uh, if you think back to the uh, one of the reasons for why uh, uh, Soviet-style um, uh, communism was supposed to be so bad was because of the brutalist architecture and the very tall buildings without any um, social amenity. Um, it always makes me smile in a sort of twisted sort of a way uh, as we move towards a whole lot of very tall towers to... Uh, supposedly um, uh, alleviate the issue of high uh, prices, homelessness, and et cetera, et cetera, when in actual fact the problems with uh, no uh, shelter and homelessness is actually a policy that's related to lazy con- uh, capitalists making their living out of uh, high-priced uh, dwellings and uh, the non-recognition of uh, housing as a human Right. But anyway, that's a much larger issue. But uh, I was talking to Stephen Jolly, who's a socialist councillor for Yarra, because there were these uh, uh, noises coming out of um, the council there around um, weakening, diluting the uh, community ability to push back on developments uh, at a council level. Uh it's they're not very strong at anyway, but they do have some relevance to uh, when developments appear. Anyway, I wanted to know what uh, was going on, so I uh, had a chat with him about it. There were some fairly interesting things happening down at uh, Yarra um, over the last weeks. Uh, the council uh, with the uh, strong green majority was pushing to... Uh, change the arrangements for the community's ability to affect developments. Can you explain to my listeners what was going on? Well, um, at the moment, um, if somebody wants to um, have a development in the city of Yarra and you don't like it, you think it's too high or you think it ignores heritage or you think there's not enough social housing or public housing incorporated in it, you can object to that. And if six or more people object to a development application, whether it's a small one or a big one, Um, the decision to approve that development or not is taken out of the hands of the planning officers at Yarra and put into the hand of the elected councillors. And they meet every second Wednesday in a little sort of like a judge duty meeting. We're rostered on a year in advance, three groups of three councillors, and you get one of those three groups. And it's a much more democratic process. And um, it's like an elected judge in a sense. And it's much easier to uh, to get a good hearing as an objector, um, and and the, the locals like it, and it means that the the, the development um, is less bad than it otherwise would be in the city of Yarra. Usually, although I have to say, the bad guys, if they lose at this meeting, which is called a planning decisions committee, can always appeal to VCAT and get it overturned. But it's a little bit harder for them to do that than if they get the approval from council in the first place. So what the um, the current um, plan is is to make it more difficult for residents to be able to do this. So instead of having six as a minimum number of residents to object to or to go to this judge duty meeting, you now need 15. And also all developments below a certain financial size are approved by the uh, planning officers rather than being able, uh, for residents to be able to kick them upstairs to the planning decisions committee. So it's an attack on the democratic right of residents, it's also a weakening of the limited power, the very limited power that councillors have to affect development, which is the biggest issue in the inner city. Um, and the developers love this. Um, 
state government, no doubt, love this. Um, the only people that don't like it um, will be the residents and we'll get a better outcome from it. So the motion, unfortunately, was passed by six votes to two. The Greens and um, four of them were there with two independents voted uh, for this. And myself and another socialist, Bridget O'Brien, voted against. So we lost that vote six to. But Bridget O'Brien, that councillor, my colleague, she's put in a rescind motion, which means that we have to do it again in, uh, on Tuesday week at the next council meeting. And um, the residents are going to turn up in, in even greater numbers at that meeting and try to appeal to the councillors, in particular the Greens, not to pass a developer-friendly law to weaken democratic rights uh, at this time at the city of Yarra. So hope, we'll see what happens. Yes, it's really interesting. Yeah, there's a, a lot of... Uh... A pressure on councils in the inner city to uh, allow developments at the moment. The state government is has actually weakened local council regulation of developments, hasn't it? Well, well, yeah. I mean, the, the power of residents and a local councils, even if those local councils could, uh, are good ones, you know, to 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 limit or to make better the development that's taking place, is very limited, as you say. Um, and I can't for the life of me understand why councillors, particularly green councillors, would want to weaken that already weak power. What we found in our area is that the more residents are involved, the better outcome we get. So if you look at the Gas and Field site on the corner of Smith Street and Langston Parade, if you look at the ex-Amcor, the big Yarra Bend development where the on Heidelberg Road, Chandler Highway um, intersection, if you look at the old Channel 9 site, if you look at many, many jobs, big, big uh, construction sites and applications around Yarra, where the residents have gone involved, like those ones, we've had, for example, at the gas field site, 20% low-cost housing incorporated into it, a school. We have open space, uh, community facilities, protection for the banks of Yarra, all things that weren't in the original development application from the investors, from the developers. But thanks to the community being involved and being able to object and push back a bit, we got a better application so that these these big developments don't end up looking like the docklands, which are just squeeze as many units in as possible, with no social services, with no nothing there for the community, um, or the South Bank's another example. So keeping the community at bay, keeping them out of the process is, um, is bad, not just for developers, but it's actually bad for the end product. So we should be bringing the... Because the community live in that area. They know what they need. And if you're going to put, for example, 5,000 new people into Alpington, like we've done at the exam course site, it's entirely correct that we have um, a school there. It's entirely correct that we have um, sports facilities, open space, and so on and so forth. And they're all things that have happened on that site, on that application, thanks to the involvement of the community. So councillors should not see um, residents as the enemy, but as their key weapon to push back against developers and to get a better result for the community. It is a little bit disturbing. I'm sure that uh, many people believe that voting for the Greens was a quite a positive community step. Yeah, and, and there would be correct in thinking that. You, you, you go onto social media, Adam Bant's um, tweets and, and social media stuff, it's really good. I mean, he's copying in a way in 2017 the politics of people like Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders with Tax the Rich and... Um, and, and having a, in a more equitable taxation system and, 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 and a stimulus package for the economy to get people back to work, a Green New Deal, and all those things, which, I, I mean, speaking personally, as a socialist, I would sign up to any day of the week. But the lower down you go, when, you, when the one area of Australia where the Greens actually have power, which is Yarra, um, we've had these disturbing trends towards a pushback against the democratic rights of councillors, but also of 
residents. And I think it's something that um, needs to be looked at. I think the Greens need to have a little bit of an internal review on this. And maybe Adam needs to talk to his, his colleagues on this one. And then um, hopefully they'll see the light. But in the meantime, we're going to be pushing back and the community is going to be pushing back and we're going to be fighting to keep the status quo, which bad as it is, is better than what would happen if this motion is passed on Tuesday week. The um, residents at the public housing estate uh, in Collingwood, uh, in Wellington uh, Street, uh, have been uh, told that they're going to have some of their green space taken over by new developments. And this is a state government initiative. They're talking about how Collingwood is one of those areas that is has got a very low ratio of uh, residents to green space. Um, is this something that the council has any say over? No, it's a state government initiative, but I agree with the premise of your question. Um, it's almost like public housing tenants are the only people in Victoria that every time they get something good, they have to almost pay for it. So, for example, if you're looking at any country town or any suburb of Melbourne and the, the state government decide that there's, so many, there's such a population growth that we need a new school, well, then they just build a new school. End of story. They don't say to people, if you want a new school, you've got to give us back something in return, like, for example, a local park or whatever. But with public housing tenants, the rules seem to be different. So what the state government have said is, oh, we want to build social housing. By the way, it's not public housing. It's social housing, unfortunately. But nevertheless, it's better than private housing. So everybody's uh, popping the champagne corks. We know there's tens of thousands of Victorians suffering from rental stress, couch surfing, um, homeless, um, and fewer and fewer Australians, especially young people, can afford to buy a house. So anything the state government do, even social housing, to fix that, to help fix that, is a good thing. But then, then comes the sting in the tail. We're going to put it not on any of the sites that we own in the city of Yarra. For example, the police uh, centre, which, which, which they're going to be selling anyway, on the other side of the road on Wellington Street, or any of the other sites that they have. They want to put it on the basketball court, on some of the green open space, of some of the poorest, most vulnerable residents in our area, which is the Collingwood Public Housing Estate residents. And not surprisingly, they've said yes to public housing, but this is a really bad place to put it. Um, why put it here? Um, it's also going to um, impact their parking because it's right on top of their uh, parking um, uh, spot. And um, even though they'll be given new parking spots after construction, that could be a couple, two or three years later. And I don't know what they're going to do in the meantime. Many public housing tenants work, take, have large families, really need their cars to get the kids to school, shopping and so on. And, um, you know, this something that I would desperately ask the local MP, who happens to be the housing minister and the planning minister, Richard Wynne, to look at. Yes to the social housing, in, uh, uh, literally across the road on the police centre side, or squeeze it in the new stake up and development on the gas and fuel side. But please don't take away uh, the sport and green space of Collingwood's public housing tenants. Well, they were also talking, the public housing tenants were also talking about initiatives that they had actually grown for themselves, like a gym as well as a uh, theatre space, which they were they created in the car, car area. Um, yeah, and, now, now not, and then all of a sudden, what a coincidence, the state government have announced that the car space, the underground car space, which has been used so well, as you say, by Collingwood residents, public housing residents, is now unsafe. They've pulled the safety card out um, in order to help um, stymie the opposition um, to, the, to, the, to the location of their, um, of their initiative, of their social housing initiative, and try to undermine the residents. I just think that um, 
the, 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 the state government need to sit down with resident leaders and listen to what they have to say. Not some nonsense consultation that they've organised through DHSS that really is, is just there. It's a ticker box. It's not really consultation. Um, because this is, uh, it, it can be fixed and it should be fixed. Well, that, that's a fantastic segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which was the destruction of the uh, Collingwood uh, Community Gardens, which was also done based on a safety requirement uh, put out by um, WorkSafe. But uh, as you've pointed out, that uh, WorkSafe doesn't actually require people to destroy things to make them safe. But um, there's going to be a public meeting about what's going to happen to that space on April the 8th. I think it is Friday, the April the 8th. Um, there's obviously the community is really, really upset about what's going on there. Absolutely. Um... And they've got a lot of support. They've got a support of Adam Bant, the federal member, the leader of the Greens, but he's also the local federal MP. They've got the support of me and um, and, and other, some other councillors, at least at the city of Yarra. But more importantly than any of that, they've got the support of the overwhelming numbers of the um, percentage of, of the local community. We um, the, the new committee of management, which seems to be a law unto itself, um, is acting in a very, very strange way. They, they've said that they want to change the model for that land. And if they've got that point of view, put it on the table so we can discuss it. But why why does any change of model in quite a large area that they control have to necessitate literally bulldozers coming down and churning up and destroying plots that have lasted for decades, uh, been in existence for decades uh, at the Collingwood Children's Farm? It's, it's a disgrace. Um, and um, I, I can't for the life of me understand why the state government have financed this destruction. We should be treasuring and nurturing um, inner city plots and farms. We should be saying this is a fantastic thing. It's overwhelmingly farmed by um, low-income people, by women, by people of colour. Um, not exclusively, but 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 you know these these are the victims here. Um, plus also um, animals and fauna and um, and of course the plots themselves have been thoroughly destroyed. It's been churned up. Like you'd see at a demolition, like like you'd see at the start of a construction site. It's disgusting. It's quite devious, really. The devious part. Of it. And I was sort of interested in the announcement that Heritage Victoria has some hold over the um, uh, Collingwood Farm, the children's farm. It wanted to change some structures, and it was going to Yarra Council to discuss the issues of changing some structures on the children's farm. What role does Vic Heritage Victoria have on the farm? Well, I mean, I would, I would hope Heritage Victoria would say that the farm itself, the plots itself, had heritage value. I mean, it's the largest inner city, or was the largest inner city farm, not only in Melbourne, but, but in Australia. There's nothing like it in Sydney or Perth or Brisbane or Adelaide. And that should be protected just as much as we protect some building that was owned by some colonialist in the 1800s that has some immense architectural value. This is living, this is living heritage, and it's it's really bad that it wasn't classified as such by Heritage Victoria. But be that as it may, the um, the application now from the from the um, committee of management and so on is to do some development of new buildings um, that necessitates. Heritage Victoria to give approval and a planning application, which they're going, which is going to be process, processed through the city of Yarra. We'll, we'll see what happens with that uh, when that starts. But that goes to the heart of what the plotters have been saying. 
that it's not just about them. It's about the whole area potentially being changed and developed and turned into um, a drop-in centre for, um, uh, for, for, for rich, in, rich inner city people rather than the urban uh, farming and the plot, plot, plots that have existed for so many years. Um, and this is just, uh, it's been predicted actually by the plotters for many months now. Oh, it's it's just sort of fairly disgraceful, isn't it? I mean, in the in the day you could uh, rent a reasonable place in uh, this whole area, but uh, now it's really becoming the bastion of the incredibly wealthy. Yeah, that's right. And um, the, 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 but I don't want to end this interview with doom and gloom. I mean, we have had some big wins, and 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 the common denominator of all of those wins, going all the way back to the East West Tunnel campaign, but all the wins we've had since then in Yarra on a whole range of issues. Um, have all come when locals have fired up, got organised, written their petitions, organised the public meetings, lobbied the councillors, turned up to the meetings, organised sometimes protests and rallies. It hasn't guaranteed victory in every occasion, as we've seen with the plotters at the farm, but it definitely exponentially increases the chances of success. And I think that's the lesson of that, that the that Twitter, you know, um, TikTok, Instagram, it's marvellous. It's, it's a really important auxiliary to fighting back against the bad guys. But that alone is not politics. Um, politics is organizing and politics is not just agitation and education, it's also organizing. And that's what um, I think is really, really important lesson to learn from them. All these issues, as you say, that are going down in Yarra, but in fact, all over Melbourne at the present moment in time. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks, Danny. at paying the heavy price for COVID? How about healthy, safe conditions at work? More health care, less police powers, a safe world with free vaccines for everyone. Rally Saturday, the 19th of March. Fight for public health and workplace safety. State Library, 12 o'clock noon. This rally was initiated by Workers' Solidarity and rally organisers are 3CR supporters. A weak solidarity Bricky team listener when, sadly, a major threat has emerged to the economic recovery and to the hopes of controlling inflation. Wages. Evil unions have announced they will be demanding demand, how dare they, demanding wage increases of 5 to 6% as wages fall behind the soaring cost of living increases. Those who comprehend the delicate flower that is the economy looked aghast, pointing out responsibly this would threaten the economic recovery and sabotage hopes that inflation will recede. The common sense of caring employers was put logically by our favourite spokesperson for Trublawasi oligarchs. Industry Profits Group's Innes will cost the workers. Union claims for blanket 5-6% to 6 wage increases betray their lack of understanding of both how the economy works and the current significant pressures on business as they try to recover from once-in-a-lifetime century economic shock. Is that similar to the once-in-a-century natural disasters that now occur once a week or so? In this case, especially when evil unions suggest major threats like, like wage increases? Yes, yes, you could say that, and that only highlights how irresponsible evil unions are that they would threaten economic shock after economic shock. 
uh, which bit of how the economy works don't evil unions understand in us. The relationship between profits and wages, how wages restrict economic growth and that economic growth is good for all of us. Uh, growth like the record profits, hundreds of percent in some cases, many, many times five to six percent, true blue Aussie oligarchs have been announcing. Exactly, and that growth will trickle down through sensible wage increases when the time is right. Uh, which will be? We'll let you know. Oh, goody. So we urge irresponsible evil unions to hold fire, stop threatening the economic recovery, stop undermining inflation, stop betraying their economic ignorance, and wait for Innes and our oligarchs to tell us when the time is right. More shattering news this week affecting us all, listener. A blatant and unjust attack on our oligarchical family trusts by the bloody tax department, which has no right to interfere in our affairs, which are, after all, a matter between us and our tax accountants and tax lawyers. No business whatever of the tax department and the bloody government, yet the tax department announced it will introduce new rules for family trusts after a long investigation into anti-avoidance measures, the assumption being that our family trusts avoid when we know they simply allow us to meet our legal tax obligations. That's why we pay those exorbitant but value-for-money fees to accountants and tax lawyers. Our anger expressed for all of us by Tony Greco of the Institute of Public Accountants. All of a sudden, Tony was distressed. Basic transactions involving trusts are now open to indefinite scrutiny. The updated guidance has shifted the goalposts for the way a trustee allocates trust income to beneficiaries in a tax-effective way. Uh, tax-effective, Tony. Well, yes, it means effectively uh, they pay no tax, but, and I can't stress this strongly enough, but these people meet their legal tax obligations. And now? And now they'll have to pay us more so that under the shifted goalposts they can continue to meet their legal tax obligations. God, it's a worry, but there is some hope. The Tax Institute questioned whether the tax office should use limited resources to review these arrangements at all and will make representations to the tax office and no doubt to senior government ministers on behalf of those families who are so close-knit and family-oriented that they have their little family trusts. Absolutely, what a waste of resources trying to get the filthy rich to pay taxes when we all know they already meet their, well, we all know. And I told you, this affected us all. And it's not that a bit of sensible lobbying for a worthy cause can't be effective. Like that bloody tax, as the industry calls it, levy, the state government names it, of a crippling 1.75% on windfall profits from land rezoning and property developments to be used to provide social and community housing. They never use the word public housing anymore. The money would have been handed to private organisations who can handle these things much more efficiently than the bloated hand of the public sector. Anyway, the mere suggestion causing the development and property industry to reach for the smelling salts and splutter as they regained their voices that this would be the end of the world as we know it, and particularly the end of young couples, young first-home buyers being able to afford that that first home.
and that is their sole concern. No self-interest, no care for their own profits, just their altruistic regard for young true blue Aussies. Thankfully, they agreed not to oppose a related change which would streamline planning approvals and zoning changes, pouring trillions in windfall profits into their coffers, which presumably they would use to make it even easier for young couples to buy their first home. As they screamed and yelled about the levy, or sorry, tax, the federal socialists reputedly panicked that the 1.75% could lead to the socialists being accused of being a high-tax party, and thus, as the property industry screamed and yelled, the proposed levy for social, not public housing, lasted about three and a half minutes, give or take. Top marks to the state socialists for courage under fire. They're also proposing stronger environmental regulation, stronger energy efficiency standards for new housing, and again, the industry is upset, nay stronger, righteously up in arms that this too will lead to increasing the cost to first-home buyers, their sole concern, altruism upon altruism, except... A separate report by a house mortgage group excitedly assesses that house and land prices in the very urban fringe areas where many first-home buyers first-home buy are going through the roof, pun unavoidable, and the same industry concerned about increasing costs for these people is popping the corks and celebrating that prices are soaring. Dear me, for so caring and selfless an industry, there must be a much simpler explanation than hypocrisy and greed, especially when reports also tell us those soaring costs of living increases are hitting those same areas hardest, those same people about whom the industry so cares hardest. Oh, and the Federal Caring Business Class Party unaffordable housing minister Michael Sucker up to Capitol accused the state socialists of increasing the tax burden on all Victorians, which we don't doubt must be true, can't doubt from so important a personage, but Michael, a little explanation of how a 1.75% levy, sorry, a tax on property developers and speculators in the home construction industry would be a tax on all of us. And we all appreciate Michael's contribution to the housing affordability crisis, like attacking any attempt to address it. Another minister taking her job very seriously, the Minister for Pollution, Susan Lees and Dregs, took these young environmentalists to court to argue that she had no responsibility of care for them in assessing all the new fossil projects she keeps approving, overturning an earlier irrational federal court ruling that she does have a duty of care. Obviously, I can't keep approving these important national projects if I have to take their environmental impacts into consideration, she made a telling point, which shows how juvenile and puerile and irresponsible and anti-Trublawazi these young people are. She got stuck into a bit of tautology as she came up with a fail-safe plan to thwart any other juvenile, puerile, irresponsible, anti-Trublawazi attempts to impede progress. 
we will declare all these fossil-rich areas where the industry wants to benefit the country by exporting it exempt from environmental considerations, or, or more correctly, we will conduct a generic environmental approval process for all of them so applications can be approved immediately knowing they will meet my very strict environmental pollution standards. One of the esteemed corporations long respected for observing strict environmental standards and which announced record profits in the hundreds of percent, Woodside with profit supremo Kevin Gallbladder of Piss, told us how the fossil giants generally would achieve zero emissions by 2050, presuming optimistically the planet is still here. We will still need fossils and we will still have emissions, he prognosticated. Uh, but, but Kevin, how is that zero emissions? Quite simply, we will plant a tree in Java. Uh, but, but surely zero emissions means zero emissions, no emissions. As our very good friend Innes Will Custer Workers explained, that question betrays your ignorance of how our economy works. One of the conga line of US, of the UN, of the US, of the world experts, the ABC dredges up to inform us how evil, evil Russia is. This one with a euphemistic title that sounds quite passive, but was stunned by the Russian bombing of a site near the Polish border. The International Peacekeeping and Security Center, clearly a benign establishment devoted to peace and security. What destruction of all that is good. And it wasn't until some time later, another interviewee was asked why they would bomb a centre so devoted to international peacekeeping and security, that a slightly different story emerged. I'm surprised it took them so long, he expressed surprise, because it turns out the title was also a euphemism, because the peacekeeping security centre is, was the pipeline for U.S. of NATO weaponry entering Ukraine and the headquarters for the U.S. of trained training of Ukraine-trained killers. Perhaps not a euphemism, for the U.S. of knows that war is peace, trained killing is security. And while none of this justifies putting the trained killers thuggery and slaughter, a little bit of honesty in the conga line of pro-U.S. of interviewees wouldn't go astray. On the US of new biography of our former great and beloved big supremo nuclear hawk himself says his very, very, very close buddy, former US of big supremo George Bash the Workers Senior, choked up with emotion when he saw Nuclear Hawk relegated to the back bench after poor Nuke was knocked off by the world's greatest worst ex treasurer Paul. And I thought, I know how he felt because I choked up when I saw Nuclear Hawk on the front bench. Last week, we conceded the government was being honest for once in its tele-ads promoting its environmental credentials. Rubbish, 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 the ad admits, and we have to make the same concession to Lord Rupert of Wapping for ads for his pay-TV, pie-in-the-sky so-called news commentary. A full-page ad, photos of the usual suspect Lord Rupert acolytes, bolt through the head, Peter Incredible et al., admitting, inquiring minds demand more honest views. What a refreshing bout of honesty. They certainly do, and they're certainly not going to get them from Lord Rupert, and here he is admitting it. 
finally, he doesn't say 3CR is the place for inquiring minds to get more honest views, but stuff false modesty, we'll say it. Good morning. Hey, how's it going? You're listening to 3CR Radical Radio. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We're going to have a chat about uh, the Preston market and what's going on there. G'day, Gatiano Greco. You're you're um, prepared to have a little chat with me. You're from the uh, council. You're a councillor on Darabin Council. But uh, we're going to have a chat about your views, your independent views about what's going on in regards to the Preston market. The, uh, the Victorian Planning Authority, the VPA, have uh, given directions to uh, fast-track a proposal to uh, green-light developments on the uh, Paran market, sorry, the Preston market site. Can you tell us what's going on? Yeah, hi, Annie. Uh, look, uh, thanks for um, um, allowing me to express some views about the uh, Preston market. Yeah, look, the, the most recent thing that's going on, it just got announced this week, um, was that the uh, the VPA, the Victorian Planning Authority, has revised its original plans for the uh, Preston Market site, and it's come back with um, saying that you know we're um, you know we're going to reduce the heights on the site, you know, from 20 to about 14, um, and and a few other changes that it's going to introduce. But the essential point, the fundamental point, is that 80% of the market is still going to be demolished. So whilst they've um, said that, you know, we, we've revised our plans, you know, um, given um, the community feedback because they had a, a process of submissions uh, where 386 submissions were put into the um, VPA. Uh, basically, you know, I actually went through all the submissions and basically, you know, uh, there's only like half a dozen submissions supporting the original proposal. All the other submissions said, you know, just leave the market alone leave the footprint of the market. We want to save the existing market. We don't want a new market. And, um, but, you know, the VPA has basically ignored what the fundamental uh, uh, opposition was and, and just given us a, a bit of window dressing, uh, a bit of greenwashing, and um, just saying, oh, we're just going to reduce the fuel, the, um, the height. And, and also uh, the other thing that the VPA and its revised plans have said, that instead of 2,200 uh, dwellings on the site, is reduced as down to twelve hundred, and if I could just say, say this, Annie, is that whilst whilst the VPA uh, revised plans, you know, seem to be, you know, um, you know, uh, you know uh, a, a reduction in, you know, in height and density and volume and things, but but what uh, what I believe that they've done is that they put out an outrageous ambit claim <laughs> right at the, at the outset. Yeah, it sounds right? like so it to me look, too. Look over here, you know, and and then. And then come back later on, saying, "Oh, now look here. You know, we're, we're you know we've listened to you. We've reduced this, reduced that, but but not, not but the fundamental point about saving the Preston market, which is the soul of Preston, still 80 percent of that's going to be demolished, and they're completely silent on that." Well, the Save the Preston Market Action Group has actually uh, said that uh, very similar. Uh, uh, they see it as a red herring, and and in fact, it's uh, very. Cl- uh, they see that it's uh, a precursor to something that's happened in other municipalities, like uh, the Mooney Valley, uh, uh, when they lost their market, for example. 
You're spot on, and that's a great uh, that's a great example. I mean, uh, a few decades ago, there was a wonderful market out there in Mooney Ponds, actually, uh, and um, and what happened? Similar, it's almost history replaying itself. Um, you know, they're saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you know, we want to save the market, and we're going to have a market, and, um, and 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 so they just kept saying the developers at the time just kept saying that, and um, and then. As they slowly um, got their proposal across the line, what then we saw, and which is evident today, that the market completely disappeared off the face of the earth in in, in Mooney Ponds. Like chip, so chip, chipping sort of away. Wall. Exactly, it's just like this wall of attrition, you know. Sort of. So at the outset, you know, even even in Preston Market, you know, the the VPA is saying, oh, but there's going to be a market there. The key word is a market, not the existing market. So it all hinges on this, whether we're going to have the existing market or an A market. So the VPA said, oh, we're going to have an A we're going to have a market there. And so they're saying this at the outset, but but then as if we have to, the only historic example we have is uh, Mini Ponds market. In terms of where this will land, then in 10 years' time, will, will there Will the market still be on the? Uh, on, will there still will the market still be on on the drawing boards? Let alone not only the existing market, but any sort of market still uh, still be there on that side. So it's sort of rolling over the bones of the history of the people that built this place. I oh, look spot on, and look, it's, it's a fifty-year history, or actually fifty-two years. Um, you know, just a little bit of history. I think your listeners will be interested. At the time when the market was built, um, it, 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 when we have to understand, the market was, was built on private land. It's always been private land. But at the time when the market was built in the late 70s, um, it, 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 it was built as, a, as an open-air, purpose-built market. And at the time, um, people were saying to the, the, to the developer, to the saying, oh, look, you're mad. Why, why, why do you want to build an open-air market? You've got to go down the American trend of having these, um, you know, typical like, you know, your Northland sort of boxed in air conditions. And the guy, I must say at the time, you know, he's, he had a bit of a vision. He said, no, no, I want to build a market because I know it's going to be su- successful. The guy was, a, you know, Eastern European, so he knew, you know, that, you know, what markets bring, you know, for, for different cultures. And it's been a successful market ever, ever since. And it's been basically a, an icon. And for the um, for the Preston area, and and mind you, we have to understand that Preston Market is the second biggest market after Victoria Market. If you go north of Victoria Market, there's no other market of of the stature of Preston Market. Oh, I have to gonna, say, it's cheaper and better, perhaps even in a village. Yeah, and it's got it's got a much. It's, I as a little boy, I used to work at Victoria Market when I was a little boy. My uncle had a a fruit shop there. And Preston Market still maintains that, you know, that, you know, that sort of working class, that, um, you know, uh, mixture of um, people that, um, you know, hasn't been sort of gentrified or overly yuppified and things like that. And you have a beautiful mix of people, which is a, a beautiful blend that you see. You know, you can see the waves of migration there. You can see the young people moving in and um, coming to the market. And it's got this wonderful, casual, you know, um, feel about it, unlike um, if it was to be turned into more like a, a shopping centre. Um, you know, you know, you feel like 
sometimes I do. You know, when you go to shopping centres, like everyone's walking through a catwalk there. Well, know, actually, I don't go to shopping centres because of exactly anyway. what you're just saying. But I was going to yeah. say... Um, it really leads to this thing about nothing to hold on to in a, a social sense. If everything looks the same, if the zombie towers take over, uh, people don't actually have any patterning to hold on to. You're spot on. And it's interesting, you know, at Preston Market, when you talk to people, it's not only a market, again, for the local people of Preston, people come from all over the place uh, to press the uh, to press the mode. You know, from Point Cook, um, there are some people I've met there that um, come down every couple of weeks. Yes, to see family, but they come from um, you know some from some of the country areas, uh, you know, from Benalla and places like that. And where do they head off to when they come down? They head off to Preston Market. Why? Because it's different. It's got a different feel. They don't just want to go and visit another shopping centre, which is, you know, you can be in Melbourne or Adelaide or, or Rome or Madrid or, you know, wherever, or you know, yeah. California. You know, Preston uh, Market has, has its own personality. Yeah, the Save the Preston Market Action Group actually had a plan that they put forward, didn't they? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked about that. And look, that... They've done a lot of work, and I really commend the guys there from the Preston Market Action Group. And, uh, and recently what they did was, and it was all done on a voluntary basis, uh, and some uh, urban planners and uh, uh, architects um, got together and actually devised a, a community vision for the market. And, where, and what the community vision um, basically puts forward is that to make the market a market site, you know where when that 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 it becomes a uh, a civic centre, if you like, you know, yeah. and has a very sort of uh, a civic feel about it, and and the market being you know the the, the central hub of that. Also, what the um, Save the Preston Market are advocating, which which I think has a lot of merit, is that given the um, the importance of the market to the community, you know, the state government really nearly really needs to consider uh, public acquisition of the market. Why? Because the market over the years, even though it's been operating on, you know, the private market, it's taken on a, a strong public persona. So what the Preston Market Action Group is saying is that there, there is a, a public good or a public interest in um, for the state government, maybe together with the council, uh, is to publicly acquire the market and put it in public hands, similar to um, Vic Market and Parade Market, because what the Save the Preston Market Action Group say is that that's the only way that you can really save the market into the future, if it is in public hands and um, and like that, um, it ensures you know the, the survival of the market into the future. Thanks very much for talking to us today, Gatano. Oh, it's a pleasure, and thank you for your interest in the market. Yeah.
And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got uh, Sister Susan Connolly on the line because there's more developments in the Bernard Kaleri case. Hello, how are you, Sister? I'm Will Annie and I hope you and your listeners are well too. Yeah, uh, well, it's a it's an interesting times, we'll have to say, and uh, just recently the uh, Bernard Kaleri who's been, uh, well, explain to our listeners what's going on. Yes, well, um, yes, it's so convoluted, of course. But <clears throat> late last year, um, Bernard and his lawyers appealed the level of secrecy in the um, ACT Court of Appeal, and it was successful, a successful appeal. But the Attorney-General appealed against that decision, and so just in the last week, Judge Mossop has upheld the government's appeal. Now... Uh, the judgment that he made is available on the internet. It's easy to get a to get it. Um, you know, you just look up the ACT Supreme Court and go for the judgments, and it's actually uh, the Queen versus Caleri number eleven uh, versus Caleri. Now, <clears throat> a couple of the newspapers have picked it up, and um, they've um, helped us all to understand that actually evidence so secret that Canberra lawyer Bernard Caleri himself cannot know what it is, will be permitted to be used by the Attorney-General in the case against him. That's a byline that I've just read to you in um, ABC News, actually. So evidence so secret that the defendant and his lawyers will not be permitted to see it. Someone said to me the other day, this is pre-Magna Carta, and I'm starting to think it is. Now, look, Annie, uh, it's further complicated, as people will see if they attempt to read that judgment, that they're talking about two types of judgment, uh, two types of evidence, I'm sorry, two types of evidence. It says categorically in the judgment that um, the normal prosecution evidence will be completely available to Mr Caleri. But there's a, there's a type of evidence that they call court-only evidence, which is supposed to be to explain other matters that should not be publicly disclosed. Now, look, I'm no lawyer, and I really cannot see the difference between all this, so I am guided by um, other minds. But I find it um, very disturbing... Well, the, the 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 problem the problem is is that no, who who judges what's so secret that nobody can see it except the judge? Is it? Uh, well, well, there's um something that was said. I just haven't got it here in front of me. That there's some um, opinion that the evidence is so secret that it shouldn't be brought into the court at all. Like it's Ebola. It's the Ebola of um, (laughs) of ideas. Yes. Now, look, I came across some interesting information in that very judgment, which is available to everybody on the internet. Now, it seems that there were some affidavits made in uh, 2019 on the government's behalf. Uh, Mr Caleri of course and his lawyers had other affidavits from other people as well speaking in his defence but these were against 
<coughs> him. And one of them, and this is publicly available, is by um, Mr Paul Simon, who is now the Director General of, the, of ASIS, the Australia Secret Intelligence Service. Now, I'll just read out just a couple of sentences. Uh, some aspect of my concerns can only be explained by reference to certain information of an even more sensitive kind. This in this is information that is only available to a very small number of people within the Commonwealth. Further disclosure of this information could result in a real risk of extremely serious harm, including potentially catastrophic harm to Australia's national security. So we've got this we've got at the heart of this democracy a, a secret cabal. Well, look, I don't know about cabal, but I, I mean, I was gobsmacked by this word catastrophic harm. Now, well, well, consider, well, considering that uh, Bernard Collier's case is about divulging information uh, about uh, uh, um, uh, bugging the uh, yes. East uh, Timor Leste's parliament, or, uh, uh, parliamentary people uh, around the. Uh, uh, Timor Sea oil and gas. Yes. Um, that information's already well known. Well, it is. I mean, people are still bandying word alleged around. I never use. Well, it it's not alleged. It was we proved. Know, we know it happened. Bernard Collieri is not being pr- prosecuted for telling lies about Australia. No. A new a new treaty was not signed in 2018 on the basis of false assertions or false information. What gets me about this, Annie, is the abysmal stupidity of the whole thing from word to go. If Australia's national security could have been put at risk by the revelation of that um, uh, espionage in 2004, why on earth did they go ahead with it? Like, I mean... Wouldn't you? Well, do well, a it's sort of, it's sort of a government assessment? government in Somebody bed. Somebody might blow the whistle. Yeah, no, but it's it's government in bed with business and this uh, and this um, uh, ridiculous push to make out that uh, the business interests of private individuals and uh, big honchos uh, is uh, exactly the same as. Uh, our interest, the national interest, yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is uh, parallel to something I've just been reading in an Dati Roy uh, book about how the uh, nationalist government in India uh, and the Hindus uh, of that, in, at the heart of that government, uh, um, sees itself as being the embodiment of good, so everybody else is evil. We humans have gone ourselves, don't we? But, you know, there's something else enormously stupid about this, and it's about all this secrecy, but yet the whole thing has been blown apart all over the world. Everybody knows now that Australia spied, and they're trying to do this to the spy and his lawyer. Like, if something's so secret, why broadcast it like this? When they had the chance to fix it up under the carpet... Yeah, it's very it's very worrying on a whole lot of levels, Susan, because it's 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 very worrying for Bernard, of course, but also for Australian democracy and our legal system being manhandled by individuals like this. 
exactly. And the, the calibre of politicians. This is what I'm thinking. I mean, uh, that when they had the chance to fix this up, once Timor found out about this, they withdrew from the CMATS Treaty. They said, we want a proper border. Australia could have done that. There were approaches from the Timorese not to make it public. And still ahead, still they went. I don't know whether any of your listeners know the work of um, uh, Munster and Walsh way, way back in the 1980s, where they they found out stuff about what was going on that just pointed the total ineptitude of the people making decisions. So, I mean, all this is, you know, fodder for the next election, of course. Uh, And, of course, we understand, of course, that a lot of this problem actually goes back to the national security um, legislation that was uh, taken on in such hurry after uh, 9-11. I mean, I think Justice uh, Michael Kirby has said that 121 pieces of national security legislation were introduced uh, after that. And what's, many of them were introduced within a couple of hours. Yeah. What, what, what's, what's the next step for, because we're coming to the end of the program, what's the okay. next step for Ber- uh, Bernard? I think there's an appeal, uh, some, something about the affidavits, really, it's hard to keep up. There is an appeal in the High Court uh, um, on the 13th of April. Mm-hmm. And also, Labor has admitted that needs that this the, the law has to be amended. And Senator Katie Gallagher has said that the Intelligence Services Act 2001 will be amended if Labor is elected. So we need to hold them to that. If should they get in? Right. Thank, thanks for talking to us this morning. Okay. Thank you, Annie, and thanks to everybody. Bye. Yeah, and that is, that is the end of the program. But fascinating stuff. Crazy, crazy world we live in. Uh, coming up next is... Oh, and uh, um, I should say that even though we've been doing this uh, investigation on what's going on in local areas and planning, etc., etc., uh, when it, we've got a particular government flavoured at the moment. Um, I, I don't... Uh, this is not a... Uh, I have no hope for the other flavour doing a better job. So don't get me wrong. It's uh, The fight back is uh, a community fight. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And we're going to go out with the uh, wonderful Burundi drummers.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.